Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, wonderful listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hello, and welcome from the Quantum Realm. You're in the Quantum Realm. Interesting. And you've... I, I am. I'm, I'm hanging out with Broccoli Heads, and it's amazing. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know that that broccoli person is a good person or, or a good soul? You're just judging purely I drink based the, on appearance. I drink the Kool-Aid, man. I drink the red Kool-Aid, and we talked, and we're good. So once I drink the liquid from the holeless liquid dude, I... I could understand what he was saying and we were good. Okay. All right then. Well, <laughs> after what we probably refer to as an overall lackluster phase four, the MCU is moving into its next storytelling cycle, kicking things off with a trilogy capper for Paul Rudd's Ant-Man. As usual, we will be spoiling the movie. So if you haven't seen it yet, turn away, come back and listen once you have. All right, Patrick, you are coming in hot. You went to see this just this afternoon before we are recording here late in the evening, your time. And I'm going to ask you to kind of phrase your general thoughts around this question. Does this deserve the critical ire that it has received? Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is the second ever rotten rated film in the MCU. The only one that has an overall worst Rotten Tomatoes average from critics is Eternals. Does this deserve that poor rating? In my opinion, no, it does not. And I think it just depends on what you're asking for when it comes from an MCU film. So I am unapologetic about my lack of interest in staying up to date with all of the MCU-ness, everything interconnected. I kind of left that train after phase three, once we got to Endgame. And from there, it was just more of the, hey, if this story grabs my attention, great. I don't really care if it interconnects with something else. And it's why I've kind of grown to enjoy the series that I do and not have to worry about how does this fit. And so going into Quantumania, I wasn't excited about it. I mean, it was another, it was a standard MCU movie. It's, it's Paul Rudd, it's Ant-Man. It's right there in terms of like, if you're going to tier these, it's going to be like the Guardians of the Galaxy, where you have a character who is not Hulk, who is not Captain America, who is not one of the A-Squad Avengers, but still has gotten a level of respect because of the surrounding movies and stories that encompass it. And so by the time we get to Ant-Man, we've kind of experienced all that the MCU has had to offer. And we've been really impressed. So for me, I, I deliberately went into this movie really not knowing much about it. And I actually asked myself the question, could I go into this movie not having connected anything else? In other words, I asked you offline, do I need to see the first two to see the third again? Do I need to revisit? And you're like, no, you don't. So I wanted to see if at its core, at its quantum core, if you will, it was going to be a story 
that held up as a beginning, middle, and end. And for me, it absolutely did. This is a really interesting thing. This felt like a little Star Wars adventure. It was really kind of cool. And for someone who's not necessarily into the whole Star Wars lore or epic fantasy, this hit that space opera type thing. In fact, I kept thinking about Strange World the whole time, where if Strange World was live action, this is what it would look like because there were so many different components that made me feel like, hey, this is like inner space on like an intergalactic level. And so when I did that, without having to feel like what happened before, what's going to happen after, I almost like I deliberately got up out of my seat to leave before the credits started rolling because I knew there's a mid-credit stinger, there's an in-credit stinger. And unfortunately, there were people to my left and to my right that I felt like, man, am I going to get like thrown like popcorn tubs at because you're like, boo, you know, you don't want to participate in this. I stayed for the mid-credits. I did not stay for the in-credits. I read about it. It's fine, whatever. But for me, I really, I enjoyed the story. I enjoyed the story disconnected from everything else. And I feel like that's where Disney properties, in particular the MCU, needs to thrive because they're so deep into the archive. I mean, these are deep cut references that you're going to be making. You can't afford to throw back out into like phase one stuff. I mean, you might be able to allude to it, but if you have to, it's really deteriorating to a story. I never felt that. I felt like this was a, a solid adventure story from beginning to middle to end. And I think that's what we need. I think if you're going to create filler, if you're going to introduce a character that's going to pay off later in a big way, make sure that the story that they're in is going to feel entertaining. And that's what it felt like to me. It was really entertaining. That's awesome. Uh, sounds like you had a very similar experience to me then, which is great. I also had the same vibes from this being Star Wars in its space opera fantasy, space fantasy nature. And then also Strange World. I mentioned that in my FF Plus review. <laughs> Actually, I thought- Hey, I'm a smart guy. I didn't listen, but I know it's great. <laughs> we we just think alike. I mean, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. But I mean, I felt like it was so obvious, just the way that the colorful, vibrant world and the creativity of the flora and the creatures and such just definitely had a Strange World vibe. The other movie that I compared this one to is Tron Legacy. And we can talk about why when we get to uh, our villain specific sections. But I think that if you didn't pick up on it, you will immediately agree with me on why that is. So I I'm with you. I think that the critical distaste for this has been a bit surprising, honestly, to me. I, I thought it was fun right off the bat. And so sometimes when I see movies early or whatever, or when I see movies in general, I can watch it and I can go, oh, this is fun, but I can see how critics are not going to like this. Outside of maybe like one character decision that I knew would be divisive, I I thought like everybody would like this. I was like, I, I was surprised, genuinely surprised when I came out of this and started hearing folks be like, this is one of the worst movies that Marvel's ever put out. I was like, I, I don't understand what these folks want. And like what you were saying, I actually think there's a place for all of this stuff. And it, it really is interesting because Ant-Man, historically, the two previous films, were built off of not being a big part of this huge narrative. They were more self-contained than most movies in the first couple of phases that Marvel had done, right? They were 
smaller stories in a sense, <laughs> pun intended, uh, but they were they were very centered on this family and stuff. And this took that same family center, which is one of the things I really loved about it. And it just put it into that kind of big epic sort of world. But it didn't go so big that you lost the relationships that you were following, in my opinion. I think it worked really well. And so, yeah, let's talk about the creativity and the color. And Strange World, the, the design of the quantum realm. I'll be honest, I was a little nervous about this because I was like, oh, anytime we do this multiverse stuff, man, I'm just, I think I'm always going to be a bit on edge, a little bit reluctant going in because I feel like it might be confusing and it's like, oh, we're just making up something in order to create this place that we just need to keep creating places. Like we're running out of places to go. And so we just have to make something up completely new, which I guess is storytelling in a nutshell anyway. But I, I just really enjoyed the different way that things looked. And specifically, I liked the design of the characters, like the way that they would buildings that that are alive, that take off and like become part of your battle team, but also are your refuge when they're landed. Like that is a fascinating concept. It's actually sentient. Then there was that one vehicle that really stood out to me as well, that uh, when Janet and Hank, their group lands in almost like this, it's almost like this desert area. And it was very reminiscent of The Last Jedi, that last scene. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same. Me. I was thinking yeah. the same thing. Where's the red dust? <laughs> I was like, yeah, this is yeah, exactly, yes. And that vehicle like coming out at her and it like splits in two and goes around her. I thought that was so sick. Um, and I just love stuff like that. Was there more than that that stood out to you? Obviously the broccoli. I don't think there was any. <laughs> yeah, the broccoli is going to be my number one. But I think in general, there's this great kind of um, awe-inspiring balance of like fun and seriousness when it comes to some of these characters. So you have a mix and match of familial groups that are culturally like different from each other, but they're all sort of bonded by the same thing. We got to take down this guy. And... I think I like the fact that not everything looked really silly, but not everything looked really serious either. In fact, when it did look serious, it was for a point. So when we get to Kang's army, there's a seriousness to how they look. And it's not that the other soldiers don't, but like in particular, that dude with the, I think the, I could call it like the, the turbine face. <laughs> I don't know what his name was, but I think I he either. had a British He's accent, awesome. which, I th which I think is hilarious. You know, that's just ridiculous. Like, what do you do? You drink the Kool-Aid and then apparently like you can hear British accents when it comes to like these, these like micro dimensional beings. That's crazy. But I think that's what appeals to me more than anything else is the fact that there's this balance and it makes the world feel so much fuller. Like I imagine multiple cultures living in the quantum realm after seeing only a handful. And you sort of get that with a movie like Strange World, but you don't get the interaction. And so when you have ambassadors from these different places that you're getting one or two lines from, it allows your brain to sort of expand that sort of world that you're living in. And by the end of the movie, or at least by the by the third act, I really felt like the quantum realm is huge. Like it is just and it's it's colonized, not only as a result of Kang, but of all these other people. Like they've built a life here. They've built a culture 
it's not a planet. It really is its own universe, which I think is very hard to do. So kudos to the design team. I don't know if there's comic book influence here. I imagine there is a little bit, but the ability to sort of think in fun ways, like I think there was a series of people that look like rocks, like they just literally were rocks, like the rock biter from the never ending story, only just more <laughs> just like onyx type things, but just stuff like that. It just felt like you're building a world with not only like places, but people or entities that allow us to see, hey, there's a lot down here. There's a lot in this place that, you know, the second entry hints at, but doesn't really get into. And I felt like this was a great avenue to be able to sort of if you're going to give us a world build, this is the way to do it, to create something kind of brand new. And I'm not the guy that's going to champion that all the time. But after watching this, there's a part of me that's like, I want to go back to the quantum realm. Whereas at the beginning of the movie, I'm like, can we just stay in New York? I kind of want to live in the world where I know people, where I can actually recognize the faces. And by the end of the movie, I'm like, hey, let's go back because that seems kind of cool. I'm 100% with you. And I was questioning constantly, like, where did these people come from? How did they get here? They're refugees, and they talk about that, how that's why they call him Kang the Conqueror, because he took it over. And that's very much where I was getting the Tron legacy vibe, is you have Kang essentially being the clue of this system. He has come into this system that he is not part of. He has been essentially stuck there or what's the word exiled there and he can't get out, which is exactly what happened. And now he has converted part of this system into following him and essentially built this army that he wants to take from the system outside of the system to take over other worlds. Like it is so much strong legacy to me. Uh, I just found it fascinating, but like there's those refugees right at the beginning where we meet these various different species. And I wanted to know, I think like you did more about them. I wanted to know, is there an entire world of this guy with the phaser face? Like how do these phaser faces reproduce exactly? And what, wh how do they eat? <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know the, the, it's the creature design was unique enough. And, and in that way is what it reminded where it reminded me the most of star Wars that I was like, I want to know more about that species and how its world lives. I don't need a whole movie. I don't. I definitely don't need a Marvel 10-episode series about that one race. So, Marvel, please don't get me wrong here and go over to the top. But just making me wonder that within the context of watching this movie, to me, is the kind of successful creativity that I want to see on display. And I thought it was awesome. Uh, just getting to see all this, even, you know, Bill Murray's character, he plays this guy named Kylar, who used to be a freedom fighter with Janet, we learn, but he's been abandoned there so long that he has sort of switched sides by the time we meet him and is now working for Kang because Kang has taken over everything. Uh, maybe he's kind of like Tron in a way, <laughs> you know, he's been corrupted uh, and used for the dark a little side. Bit, a little bit rounder version of Tron, Sorry. you know, not as Yeah, a little Tron. bit rounder, yeah. <laughs> and he doesn't come back and help fight for the users in the end. But, That's you know, true. his good character is a little bit goofy, uh, but but it, it works. Um, and it's interesting. And I think it helps to set the stage with a fun example of 
the way that you can tell stories in an Ant-Man world, like where they have that big fight with Kylar and his team when they show up. And I don't remember who it is because there's so many of the Ant family at this point, but somebody throws one of their discs at this like little octopusy creature that I guess yeah. somebody was going to eat at one point <laughs> and it like blows up and it just becomes this, you know, Kraken that is in the middle well, of yeah. this building. <laughs> It was it was great because because Murray's character Krylar ends up e eating the thing. It becomes sort of a, a payoff joke at the end of the scene because he is saying you've got to try these. These are amazing, and he ends up drinking and then eating the creature. And you hear the creature like just perishing in his mouth as he's chewing on it. And then of course that same creature gets his come up or uh, Krylar gets his comeuppance because I think it's I, I think it's Scott throws one of the discs and that thing gets big and then just basically like consumes. Kryler. So it's like poetic justice form, which I think is fantastic. What's really interesting, Aaron, is when I see Bill Murray in a role like this, of course, I feel like I'm 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 thinking Zombieland, just sort of a quirky character. But I'm also thinking about Jeff Goldblum's character. Like I thought, oh, am I supposed to he's the No, he's not. He's a completely different character altogether. And I had to remind myself that this is not the same character that Jeff Goldblum plays as sort of his own weird like emperor type lord or whatever. But I liked it. I liked that Bill Murray is basically being his Bill Murray-esque here in his kind of like subtle comedic role, just kind of given a glance over. It's a seasoned, he's a seasoned guy. Like when he comes on the scene, he's like, technically it's Lord Kryler, but I really don't like using that name. It's not something I wanted. When you're thinking, you absolutely wanted that, dude. You're so arrogant that you yeah. really want that. And it's just, it's it's a nice little taste in this moment of them sitting on like the the interdimensional Mos Eisley spaceport, having a little bit of a, you know, whatever. And he's just having this conversation with him. And I think he's a nice addition to this scene. I'm glad that he wasn't part of the entire movie. Like he was really a great moment for the movie. Like I didn't, I was not at all upset that he wasn't the crux of this whole thing. I agree. And again, like to me, that's a good, makes it a good part of what makes it a good movie. Like these little things, these little choices added up that really worked. Whereas I feel like, in plenty of movies, one of the poor things is when you take that character and you extend him out and you try to make him a big deal and you keep bringing him back multiple times and giving him this role that just kind of makes him overstay his welcome, right? Very similar to Modoc, in my opinion. He's used more so, obviously, than like Bill Murray's character is. But he doesn't he's not there the entire film, right? He kind of shows up, drops his comic relief and then goes away for a little bit. And then he comes back towards the end and has kind of a big huzzah and going out type of moment. Did he work for you at all? Because I will tell you this for me, I think it was great. And I, and the way that I experienced this, I knew I knew Modoc had been a comic character, like not a comic book character, but like a joke. <laughs> He's made a joke in the animated series. So I wasn't necessarily expecting them to treat him as a serious, like high level threat. But I love the way that the film introduces him by teasing that. And they're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, the big machine killer is coming for you. Like you have to get away. And then when we see him, 
for the first time. And it's this giant, stupid, smushed, Corey stole face. I rolled my eyes and I was like, what is going on right now? This is the stupidest thing. I actually have it in my notes. It's tracked in my notes because I wrote down, this is awful. This is so stupid. What are they doing? This is going to sink the movie. By the end of it, I was so on board with the portrayal. It made perfect sense to me. Not perfect sense from like a science standpoint of like, I mean, I understand what they're saying happened, right? Ant-Man's fighting Yellow Jacket. Yellow Jacket gets sucked into the quantum realm and this is what happened. So they made it work, but it just felt hilarious to me. And it was used so sparingly. And the whole sequence at the end of him being almost guilt, feeling guilty about his actions and Cassie telling him it's never too late to stop being a dick. And then at the end, him being like, I'm an Avenger now. I'm not a dick. I was rolling. Like I was literally laughing out loud in the theater at these things. And I, I just, he really grew on me in a, in a strong way. And I, I don't know that everybody's going to have that experience, but I did. I mean, he was fun. He, he definitely gives me the Peter Dinklage vibe from Elf. You know, this, this small man who shows up and, and uh, of course, Buddy thinks he's an actual elf. He's like, are you the South Pole elf? And he's like, come at me one more time. You know, and it's, it's that kind of like, like tongue in cheek where you know that the writers are having fun with a person's like stature in elf. At the same time, the writers are having fun with this creation that exists in the comic books. And he's made to be farcical. He's made to be like a a sense of like yeah he's all powerful whatever because and he's got a little baby's bot bottom there you know it's just one of those deals where i don't think he didn't work for me as much as i wanted him to like i thought there were there were times when i rolled my eyes i do like his little redemptive story i think that's kind of fun and it's it's a nice little it's a nice little bow at the end of his little arc because i never felt like he was a threat i never felt like this is this is thanos who needs some kind of redemption i mean this is a character that you laugh at he's got guns but he's got little arms and by the end of the movie you don't want him to die because he's not really that powerful his power has been given to him and it's limited i mean when um when he he rolls in as scott's being talked to by kang in the prison cell and he brings him out and he's like let me go after him and kang's like don't talk while i'm in the presence i mean clearly Modok is not the one in charge. And I think it it's really kind of exacerbated by the fact that you have this huge face with the little arms and the little legs. I mean, it's meant to be funny. And I think tonally throughout the movie, there are times when it felt a little like eye roll for me. And this is someone who likes comedy. There were more often than not times when it felt like appropriate. And I think his his finishing arc, like his ability to just throw his head into the shield and you have Kang kind of like, oh my gosh, the ants can't get me, but, but you know, this guy can, I thought it was good and it was nice. <laughs> just finish him off. And, you know, just, just like Bill Murray, you don't need, I, I don't need a sequel with, with MODOK. I don't need MODOK to show up again. Exactly. And that's where I liked him because you had this villain that was a supreme threat and clearly powerful. And then you had, this side piece villain that was a joke. 
and you don't need two super serious high level threats, right? This is an Ant-Man movie. It's supposed to be comedic in a large way. And I, th- I thought that that worked for me. Kind of speaking of that, that's been one of the other criticisms I've read a lot is the stakes were not high in some people's mind. I think a lot of people went into this movie assuming Ant-Man was going to die. I'll, d- I'll take you back. Don and I recorded a- an FF Plus episode in January where we made a series of bold predictions for this film year, right? Really supposed to be challenging ourselves and going out of our way to make some, make a weird guess. And one of mine, I tried to say was that an Avenger or one of Marvel's primary characters was going to die. And he was like, no, that's way too easy. We all know somebody from Ant-Man is going to die and nobody died. And I think, when I see him as one of the critics, like react and be like, no, there weren't enough stakes. I immediately equate that in my head to, oh, you just needed somebody to die to feel like it was big enough. I felt like there were stakes in the end for me when the stakes were different. So one thing I really like about this is that we have these dual relationships. We have parents and we have like couples. We have two sets of parents, Scott and Cassie, and Janet and Hope. And then we have, or Hank and Janet, and then Hope. And then we have our couples, Janet and Hank, and Scott and Hope. And I thought that it was fascinating because there's all this interrelational stuff going on. To me, the stakes were not necessarily live or die for the family, but they were about their relationship and how they were going to go forth. Like Janet holding secrets back from Hank and Hope. That was clearly from moment one, that was an issue for Hope. Like she was struggling with her mom not being honest with her. So for me, the stakes lied more in those relational issues. And then in the end, when Scott pushes Cassie through the portal to save her, I did think for a moment I had my stakes. I thought he wasn't going to make it. And when Hope came back, I was like, okay, that's even more beautiful. They're going to get stuck in the quantum realm together. Unlike Janet, she's not going to allow him to be there by himself. This is a beautiful moment. I almost, I, I kind of understand that obviously Cassie's going to bring them back, but like I would have been fine if they didn't come back as well. But to me, there was stakes because the potential for them to be stuck there existed, right? And all of this. And the, and the the goal in that moment was, for Scott to save his daughter above and beyond himself. He was sacrificing himself to save his daughter. To me, that's stakes. And so I didn't have an issue with that. It worked just fine for me. Yeah, I don't know that I necessarily wanted stakes because these are this was a movie, unless you're just intimately connected with the character of Ant-Man and the mythology of him, which I know that you're a fan specifically of Ant-Man. I was more in tune with the fact that I was looking for a good adventure story. These are the movies that I think the MCU has created an avenue for to tell good adventures, to push the bigger narrative forward in the form of introducing villains and having stingers and things like that. But I didn't really care that we didn't get a death. I cared at the end of Infinity War that we got some loss because that was being built up. Nothing was being built up for this movie. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, 
it's Paul Rudd's last go as Ant-Man in his own series. Something big needs to happen. No, it doesn't. I was a little disappointed. I mean, like you, I wanted and would have been pleasantly surprised if if Scott and Wasp had stayed in the quantum realm. You know, they're looking out. And all I could think about was was the last Starfighter. And you got all of Rylos is behind you. And I was like, all right, they're going to rule the quantum realm and they're going to be king and queen. But no, no, daughter comes through. and She's like, dad, I need you out here in the, in the earth. So, you know, help us out here. I wasn't mad about it, but it would have been something really interesting because I'm thinking if you're trying to build a bigger narrative, if you're going to go after this dude named Kang, then you've got people now. You've got people that are not prohibited from leaving the quantum realm it's not like a planet that has a certain kind of breathable atmosphere that once you go to earth once you get big once you leave that place you can't i mean can you imagine broccoli heads flying around manhattan you know fighting off kang and his like variants i mean that'd be kind of interesting i kind of like to see that but it's not to say that we can't get back there because obviously what hope does at the very end is she easily is able to open that window, pull them out and then close it up. So we have conquered the quantum realm and hope is the genius behind that. And great. Everybody's happy. But in no way did I feel cheated because again, we're so deep into the MCU. If an Avenger dies, who cares? <laughs> Look, the people that died that people still care about, at least on the surface level, and I'm that guy speaking for it is Iron Man's dead. Captain America's gone. The original Captain America's gone. Those are the big impact players for me. So if I don't, you know, if somehow Hulk dies, maybe that'll be something really interesting, but he hasn't had enough screen time to justify it necessarily. But you lose Ant-Man. I mean, I like Paul Rudd, but it's not going to be like monumental if you lose Ant-Man. And it doesn't mean a negative thing on him. It's just that we're, we've got so many stories that we're telling it's the, the loss of a character, major or minor, is not going to be a huge impact because we've got about 50 other reserves ready to make movies and TV shows that are going to make me forget about Ant-Man or you know Natasha or whoever. It's just going it, to – that's what's going to happen. I mean, if we lose Star-Lord, I'm not going to cry about it because it's not going to feel very much of a big surprise. I'm like, you know, sometimes actors are going to stop acting, so let's just kill off their characters and I'm not going to feel like that's a big loss for the MCU because they're just going to have a dozen other characters that are going to come in and, and take the spot. Yeah, I would agree. It, it's a trick that doesn't work more than once. And and that is what people just have to accept when it comes to the MCU. You're not going to get another experience like that first 10, 12 years leading up to Endgame. That was a once-in-a-lifetime, unique, first-ever attempt at doing something, and they did it extremely well, and it captured us in a way that it just cannot be replicated because it's been done. It will never quite be the same because we know this exists and we have it to compare to. And so you're right, I agree. Like You're not going to get as impactful of deaths as you did in those films because of the way that the buildup occurred and because there was nothing to come before it. Now, Ant-Man would have mattered to me because Ant-Man's a dad. And the special thing for me is I want him to survive. Like I was thrilled because I need him to go on and retire and have a good life being a dad 
with his daughter. Like, that's what I want for him. And I really enjoyed, first of all, I love Catherine Newton. I said this on FF Plus, but I am just a huge stan of Catherine Newton in general. So I love that she was in this film. People, you need to go see her movies. The Map of Tiny Perfect Things, Freaky. There are several others. Detective Pikachu is another one, but she's awesome. And I loved the way that they brought her into this as someone who was challenging him, saying things like, just because it's not happening to you doesn't mean it's not happening. And how Scott is in this place where he's done his Avengering, like he's reading excerpts from his new book. And he's like, it's all in the past to him. And he, and I feel like that's a rightful approach to take for him. Like he, he, at one point he's like, dude, I did, I saved the world from Thanos. What more do you want from me? Like, what do I have to give at this point? And she's like, it doesn't matter because there's somebody that needs you and you can help. And why are you willing to just not do that? And I thought that was a great thing that they set up right from the very beginning of this film and like played all the way through the story with his, you know, assistance and his, his willingness to give of himself and put himself on the line. And so, yeah, I, I wanted to see them go back and be able to be a family for sure. Um, yeah. So I like, yeah, that. I mean, I, I, I did too. And when I watch their relationship, the chemistry that they have on screen, not knowing much from the previous films, I love the tension set up early on because I'm thinking you have this girl who's in prison because she was basically being an activist and they pull her out. He pulls her out of jail, come to find out that she's working with his dad or father-in-law <laughs> and, and it's frustrating to him. But I think what makes their relationship so good is the fact that he's a guy that wants to do right by her, but she needs him to do more. Like she needs him to go beyond the book signing Ant-Man. Your job's not over being a superhero, even a superhero that was fired from Baskin Robbins. You still have value. But I like the fact that she doesn't say you're the only one who can do this. I like the fact that she still sees him as her dad, as a superhero and watching them grow Again, we keep going back to Strange World, but th there's that similar kind of story there where you have a a, f a father and a son-slash-daughter relationship where he's trying to show her how deeply he cares for her, but at the end of the day, he's a parent. Like He doesn't want her hurt, and he has to be able to be willing to let her be her own person with a suit <laughs> in some cases. And there are great little moments that I think are they stand out where he does almost like it's a it's like a video game conversation where he's like you know jump punch jump then punch jump then punch and she's like i love I that jump tap jump tap I, when he's teaching her tap, how to fight jump tap yeah and when she when she finally gets big and she's able to literally get on his level i think there's some great metaphor visual metaphor and vis visual symbology there where she's finally growing up she's finally equal in her dad's eyes and they embrace and he makes that great comment it's like it's like it's like i'm uh what does he say i'm like i'm hugging the hulk or hugging uh a giant of some kind i can't remember what he says but it's really really sweet and i think that what we see from scott lang this is where i think paul rudd shines as ant-man is that he's never not a dad like she is his world and i think that's what makes marvel 
so appealing to a wide audience, just as a macro comment, is that it's the ordinary becoming the extraordinary. Is that I see Peter Parker, I see Scott and Lang, I don't see Spider Man and Ant Man, and I see Bruce Banner, I see these ordinary people that are trying to do great things by the basis of whoever, whether it's May, whether it's your daughter, whether it's science, and they somehow get wrapped up in this bigger thing. And they're constantly having to balance that and fight that. It's classic in this movie, the way that he yells at Kang, like when he is yelling as as giant man, a giant ant man, you made a promise. We don't break promises as he's like tearing through and using like buildings as shields and stuff. I never felt like that was disingenuous. Like I really felt like he was mad. Like you made a promise to me and I want my daughter back. Where is she? This is a father fighting for his daughter. This is a guy with a particular set of skills ready to take down the bad guys. And it's done so in <laughs> Liam in Neeson a tonally – appro- Exactly. But he's Liam Neeson on a comedic level. Like I would never see Liam Neeson doing this. Only Paul Rudd, the never aging Paul Rudd, doing this kind of stuff. I'm convinced that the quantum realm keeps him young personally, but that's just a theory. And I think that's why – he appeals to me and why I'm, I'm glad he didn't die because at the end of the day, I still need that father daughter relationship. If he had died, we're going to have carry on. I mean, his daughter, his wife, I mean, the, the spirit of Ant-Man and the Wasp is going to live on in these two individuals. <laughs> and so it's not like Ant-Man wasn't going to be a legacy, but I'm glad that he didn't because his story is wrapped up in his daughter, not in his ability to be a superhero. I just realized Cassie didn't get a superhero name. She has a suit. She did superhero stuff, but she doesn't have a name. Is she going to like end up as part of some new Avengers team? What what are we going to call her? I don't know. I think, uh, I don't, I don't know either. Like (laughs) ladybug, (laughs) ladybug. Ooh, (laughs) ladybug would be good. She could, she could do a red suit like Ant-Man and, and, Uh You know, some put some black yeah. polka dots on it. This is terrible. No, let's not even. <laughs> I didn't prep for this. This is ter- not a good idea. I do wonder, though. I, I hope that's not all we see of her. I would like her to come back at some point. I'm sure she will. I wouldn't think so. I would think she's going to come back. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, Big Baddie, Kang. Big Bad Dad Kang. Jonathan Majors, this is, as most have been presuming, his year. I've already seen one of the films that he is going to put out later that was picked up by Searchlight finally. It's called Magazine Dreams, and it is an incredibly heavy character piece drama in which I think he will be nominated for an Oscar, if not automatically the front runner. He is in my mind already. Uh, he, this guy is an incredible actor. I've known it since his first performance that I saw him in in The Last Black Man in San Francisco, and he is taking over between these two villainous, we assume the other one is villainous roles within about three weeks of each other coming into theaters as Kang, the MCU's next Thanos level threat. And then as someone who I actually don't know the name of, cause I haven't watched the trailers anytime recently, <laughs> but he is basically Adonis Creed's childhood friend of some kind is going to come back and be the big opponent to finish off the Creed trilogy, or I hope to finish off the Creed trilogy. And Damien is just Damien. That's scary. Okay. So he's from the Omen 
Not only that, but he is the child of Satan. <laughs> I mean, I, t- I thought Creed was going to get washed already. He's no chance. Absolutely no chance. Uh, so anyway, it's Jonathan Majors' year. And I thought he was phenomenal in this. Just even the critics of the movie have said he was outstanding as Kang. I'm curious where you stand on the character, on the ideas of the variants, if any of that was confusing to you. And then if you think this is something that could stand up to being as interesting of a dilemma for our heroes as what Thanos was trying to do. Um, I think when you start varianting a character, you really start diminishing him. And it takes a, I mean, I think it's almost like just energy. When you split energy across multiple things, that energy diminishes. So I don't not like the concept. I think that you have this guy who has been put in charge by, it feels like the Q continuum from Star Trek in some ways because he has been outcast, but he's the same guy. And I feel like Kang is like the continuum, but it's also represented in this actor, Jonathan Majors. So watching him, particularly with the Stinger, and creating this army of variants to go after who? I guess the 616, because apparently Ant-Man and his family have pissed him off. (laughs) They've been like, oh gosh, we have a powerful ally, or we have a powerful uh, adversary in this this Ant-Man, Ant-Person, and his family. I don't know that it's going to feel as epic as Thanos because, if I'm seeing this correctly, the big like culmination of this is going to be, what, two years from now? We don't have the history. We don't have that kind of lead up. Just like with the stakes we talked about earlier, we don't have that kind of thing that's going to feel like this is going to be earth shaking or, or, or groundbreaking or changing of the MCU in some way, shape, or form. That being said, I don't think that's the case. I think this is going to be Avengers. I think this is going to be, hey, there is a an intergalactic, interdimensional threat that is going to cause us to need the Avengers as they are and the new Avengers and the new new Avengers and all the different types of characters that we've been introduced to over the last couple of phases in order to get us to a place where we've got to take down this threat. I think he's credible. I think he definitely has potential. At the same time, I don't know that you're you're going to start opening up more questions about the multiverse. And that's just a problem in general when you deal with multiple universes is you get the what if scenario, which really honestly only works in the series called what if where you can actually have that to play with you're still asking questions but you feel like you're in safe ground whereas when you're doing mainline universes and now you fracture okay <laughs> we're getting into we're getting into strange world here where we're not that movie but we're getting into doctor strange and the multiverse of madness and now we're like oh great so we have this character that dies quickly and this character that dies quickly and i'm like okay are you going to just start throwing random versions of Spider-Man at me and then killing them off? I don't want to do that. So I think that it's going to take Kevin Feige's golden touch to be able to say, let's make sure that our audience gets it. Let's make sure that our audience is really kind of wrapped up in the major plot points. 
And if I am speaking for myself, I'm saying don't include any of those major plot points as part of TV series that I'm probably not going to watch. Let them be part of main movie stories. At least keep them at that level. But in general, I think I'll go see it. I think he's a compelling enough character. I think he's got enough of a backstory that makes me feel like he could do something pretty big. I just don't know that I buy into him completely just yet. Hear me out. To fight multiple Kangs, you need multiple Marvels and multiple Spider-Men. That's how you do it. And uh, that's where okay. we're headed. So okay. <laughs> The Avengers. My brain's gonna start breaking. Yeah, yeah. No, Uh, I I love them. I think it's a really interesting thing that they're setting up here. Potentially, for me, the ethical dilemma that was a choice that Scott had to make. King is basically saying that by choosing to save your own world, you are sacrificing the worlds that I'm going to go and destroy. And I found that to be fascinating because when you start talking about multiverses, you almost have to start thinking about each universe, each planet group of planets as a person, right? And it's the same concept of would you sacrifice one to save the many, but you're talking about it as a universes <laughs> instead of people. And I, I do think that that has the potential to play out in a really intriguing way. It's just so hard when you have multiple versions of characters to make that work for me. So like you, I'm a little yeah. nervous still of how that's going to work out. I mean, it looks cool. I love it in little mid credit scenes where I see the same dude playing three different versions of himself. That looks fun, but can you, actually make that work when you have multiple different people playing multiple different versions of themselves and keep it straight. It's why I'm nervous about Flashpoint with all these other Batman and Flashes and characters coming back. Like it looks cool conceptually, but from a storytelling like angle, it is super hard to pull that off and make it cohesive and make it weighty. But I have hopes. I think that Majors is just a phenomenal actor. So I'm excited about where we're going i think he seems to be powerful enough Uh, his powers of time obviously are a big deal and i'm interested to find out how they're going to twist this and and make it all work i also am a little bit more hopeful because fahey just announced recently like that marvel is trying to slow down a bit which thank you for finally hearing us all on this He said something like, and don't quote me, but I'll paraphrase, basically that they were going to try to like cut back to maybe a couple of shows a year. I think that is a phenomenal choice because there was just such an oversaturation happening. And then right after that, they bumped the release date of the Marvels from this summer back to November, which is great because we already have Ant-Man and Guardians in like the spring. (laughs) So we were going to have three Marvel movies in the first six months of the year. That was just too much. I'm so glad. I I want them to like slow things down. Like when we used to get one a year, Patrick, and then even when it increased to two a year, it wasn't quite that bad, but that's how the first couple phases were. And you had time to like get genuinely excited about what was coming and be curious. We don't have that anymore as much. And so I'm just glad that they're going to slow down a bit. 
I think the only other thing I really wanted to ask you was about the CGI. I didn't have a problem with it this time. Like it didn't stand out as a problem, which for the first time in a Marvel movie in a while that I wasn't like, oh, that doesn't look finished or that doesn't look that great. I mean, I actually thought it looked pretty darn good. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not the one to tell you if CGI looks good because I'm like, it all looks good until I see a fake mustache being removed or something like that. But even that uh, gets by me. No, I, I think it's beautifully shot. I mean, I think that this is one of those movies that has to live in the world of CGI because everything is so fantastical. And one of my favorite sequences is probably when Scott jumps into, I guess it's the quantum singularity. That's what I'm calling it, where the where the machine is that he has to you know, he has to find the little ball and he goes through that whole kind of sequence of like into the eye of the storm that everything is black it's um it gets a little overwhelming with multiple scots <laughs> just and i and i get it it's 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 for the probability thing and at one point i was hoping somebody would mention the probability drive and then now we're getting into like hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy but i knew that wasn't going to happen that was probably the only time that i felt like this is getting kind of more artistic than it feels cinematic when you have this like giant wall giant mountain of ant men that are trying to get him to to get the thing but other than that no i thought it just it was very beautiful to look at especially as you have the different characters walking through or tra- traversing through the different kinds of environments. I never felt like I was in a video game necessarily or anything that felt like it was fake, even though everything was. It was very appropriate for what we were seeing. And by the time we get to the creatures that start talking, that's where it felt like it was sort of synthesized for me, that the environment felt like it fit the characters that we were interacting with. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense um, as well. I don't know. I think that's about all I had, man, unless there's something else you wanted to talk about. I was, did you feel like there was enough wasp? I, I gotta ask you because I didn't. And this was just one of my, I don't think it was a criticism per se, but I really felt like until that end scene that hope was hopelessly just thrown in kind of randomly in moments almost. Like she was the one character that never, it felt like had a moment to herself. Yeah, there was, I think of of the LVPs, I think she was probably the winner <laughs> of this one. I think if there needed to be anything more, it was more of Evangeline Lilly's hair. I missed the long hair of Evangeline Lilly. I don't like the short hair. I especially don't like the short hair and blonde. I'm like, what are you doing? I miss my lost Kate. That's <laughs> what I miss. And, but from a, yeah, from from a storytelling standpoint, she really didn't feel as involved. And I think, the problem was is that this was really Janet's story in some ways. Janet and Scott in that order because this was her world that she lived in for years and years and years and she's got this secret that she's holding and that becomes a major plot point. And so between her and Hank, I think they shine quite a bit, especially there's this, that great epic moment where the ants come out and Hank's like right behind them and he's like, sorry, we're late. And it it's nice the but ants that developed their own we sort of, tech. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 really good. I mean, all of this it's so fantastic. <laughs> they can still be squashed like a like bugs, you know, because they're in the quantum realms real small. But I think because Michelle Pfeiffer shines in this and her story and everything that's sort of apart that, and then how Scott sort of attaches himself to that because of the stakes for his daughter, Hope really does sort of get lost in the shuffle because of the fact that she doesn't have any direct connection to all of this. Yes, 
She loves Scott. There's no doubt there. But that love isn't ever given in terms of sacrificially. And I think that's why we get the moment with her coming back through the portal to rescue him. That's why I wish that in some ways they would have been stuck there because that would have given her a little bit more weight. Like, look what you did. Not in a bad way, but look, you rescued me and I don't feel bad about it. I don't because we're together. That would have reminded me that they have this really intimate relationship and it was sort of forgotten about because it was overshadowed by Janet's issues and by uh, Scott needing to rescue his daughter and for them to have their moments. It's not bad. It just... When you start getting into a larger cast, especially when you're dealing with ensembles, somebody's going to get forgotten. I'm currently going through Stranger Things, and I'm finding that with some of the main cast, there are a couple that are sort of getting thrown by the wayside because you're introducing new characters and people are like, ooh, look, what's the shiny new toy? I don't think that's happening with Hope, but I definitely felt like her absence was more conspicuous than her presence. I got nothing to add to that. I think that was exactly right. That's the perfect way to describe it. And I'm just so glad that we both enjoyed this because I needed this. I needed a Marvel movie. I needed to come out of a Marvel movie feeling like I really had a good time. Not that it was just acceptable, but that I was I had a smile on my face. You know, I came out of the theater with my son, who's almost 99% of the time, his response is, I liked it, which means it was fine. This time it was, I really liked it, like, which means that movie was great to me. And it was nice to get that response from him, right? And to have that ride home and to talk about these characters that we saw. And I haven't even mentioned it. I'm thank goodness I'm still like babbling on here, like wasting time before we get to the, the ending, because my favorite character in this movie has to be, I think his name is Veb or Ved. I can't remember his name. But he is the little pink guy who they drink his body fluid or something. It's disgusting, but they yeah, drink him. The Kool-Aid man. In order my Kool-Aid man. The, that's, oh, that's what you meant by the Kool-Aid. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The Kool-Aid he man. He was drink, hilarious. Drink his, drink his liquid. Yeah. And the whole, jo- the whole, I just didn't, I didn't do it on purpose. The whole joke, pun intended now, about him being wanting to have as many holes like when it when they first made that joke i almost cringed because i was like oh it's that kind of stupid humor right but the payoff for that when he gets shot through and like basically looks like swiss cheese kool-aid man and he's like i have holes i couldn't contain myself like it got me and it had me rolling and i just i thought that character was so creative and so much fun yeah yeah he again i I think that to go to another 80s reference, this is the last Starfighter moment where they put the the translator on the on the collar. In this case, they're drinking the they're drinking the the liquid there, and uh, and there's so many little nuance things with him where he wipes the the Kool Aid stuff, the liquid off of Scott's face, and and yeah, just it's like he's got a little. It looks like there. they've been like drinking that. blood intentionally, right? It's yeah, what exactly. It looks like they've like yeah. dipped like they're vampires or yeah. something. Yeah, but even there's a great kind of one-letter moment where he's talking about the holes and Scott pauses and there's quite literally like four seconds and you know what's happening. Scott and the audience, me and everybody else in the theater are counting how many holes. Okay, I've got the two nostrils. I've got the ears. I've got the mouth. Oh, yeah, I've got those other two right down there. Yeah, seven. He goes, yeah, that's right. Like, yep, I got seven too, Scott. I got, se- I got seven too. We were all counting. Absolutely. I was yeah. doing it on my fingers. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> 
like you know your audience. It's so good. But yeah, he's a he's a great character, and I I love that he gets his not only his holes, but they are functional. Like he eats the things, like he destroys the things, and ends up of course filling up his holes and becomes gelatinous in hole again. Again, pun intended for everything like that. But yeah, Brilliant. good stuff. So that will wrap up this edition of Feeling Film. We hope that you've enjoyed the conversation like we have. Next week, we are jacked because in two weeks, Creed 3 is coming our way. And so to get ready for it, Aaron and I are going to have a conversation about Rocky Four and how it compares to the director's cut that Stallone put out back, I believe, in 2021 called Rocky Four, Rocky versus Drago. Aaron, you recently had a chance to watch the director's cut. I'm going to rewatch it. We're going to take a look at both side by side, talk about what worked for us, what didn't, how they compare, what they cut out and why, what kind of flow. I mean, just it's going to be good. And I'm excited to talk about it. It's going to be a really great primer leading up to Creed 3. Of course, we've already covered Creed 1 and 2. That's why we're not doing that. But if you want to get our thoughts on those two before you come in to that conversation on Creed 3, feel free to check us out, feelingfilm.com. You can catch us anywhere in the RSS feed podcast, wherever you find them. You can, you can find those episodes. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group, A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive and keep feeling filled.